Please open up in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. If you were smart, you might have stuck your finger in it when we read Hebrews 11, but if you didn't, then open them back up, Hebrews 12. We'll dive right into the reading because Dean prayed the blessing upon the Word this evening. And we'll read just the first two verses of Hebrews 12. But as we read the first two verses, keep in mind, again, the context that we read earlier in Hebrews 11, that this is coming on the heels of those stories, of those true stories of those Old Testament saints who lived their lives by faith. And so it's with that in mind that the author of Hebrews continues writing in Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thus far, the reading of God's Word in Hebrews 12. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. Do you know the origin of the marathon? The marathon. Maybe some of you here have run a marathon. Maybe you're crazy enough to have trained in the cold, wintry mornings so that you can make that 26.2-mile trek in a marathon. But do you know the origin of the marathon? It's a fascinating story. It's a story that goes all the way back to 490 B.C. And it goes back to a famous battle between the Greeks and the Persians located at a city named Marathon. And the context, what set this up, were that the Persian invaders coming from the Middle East were coming over into Greek territory and they were pressing the Greeks. They were trying to take their land to subdue them, to make them Persian. And this one great battle where the Greeks made their stand against the Persians, the Greek forces collected from these different city states and they fought against the Persians. And the battle went well for the Greeks. They were able to push the Persians back to defend their land. But in the midst of the battle, a Greek soldier named Pheidippides, Pheidippides, what a name. He's standing on a hill watching the battle go well for his own people. But off in the distance, out in the sea, he sees a Persian ship changing course full of soldiers. And they start heading south, down the Greek coast. And he thinks to himself, what could be happening? The Persians, they're diverting. They're going to where they know no Greeks are protecting the peninsula. They're going to invade the Greek lands. They're going to head into Athens. They're going to claim a false victory. And they're going to take over that city. And so Pheidippides begins to run. He's got to make it from Marathon back to Athens to warn the people of this invasion. And so he takes off all of his weapons, he takes off all of his clothing, anything that would slow him down, and he runs from Marathon to Athens, around mountains, 
And he gets all the way to Athens, and he bursts into the city, and he yells, Nenike Kamen, Nenike Kamen, we have won. We have won. And after uttering those words, he fell dead at the feet of the people. That's the origin of the modern-day marathon. It's a really good example of enthusiastic running. You see, sensing the intensity of the moment, the importance of the destination, and the seriousness of the race, he literally ran himself to the death. Now, there's lots of people who train to run that distance willingly, people who have the focus strength and determination and the endurance to run that race. And in our passage today, the, the writer of Hebrews, he's playing off of the illustration of running a race, something like a marathon, a long-distance endurance race, and he's using that to describe the Christian life. The writer is calling all of us runners, and he's saying that to run the race of the Christian life requires that same type of focus, strength, determination, and endurance. And so this passage here confronts us with a question tonight. How has your running been lately? Does your Christian life look a little bit like the race that Pheidippides ran? the desperation that he, that he ran with to get to Athens to warn the people? Or, or, or does it look a little bit more like the average American couch potato, sitting on his couch, relaxing, lounging, taking it easy? Has the race of the Christian life been your, your primary pursuit, your, your passion? Has it been the reason for your existence, like a runner training for a marathon? Or have you found yourself dragging recently? Maybe you've been convicted that your spiritual life isn't what it should be, but you just can't, you just can't seem to find the motivation to, to work on it. Maybe your spiritual welfare has just taken a back seat to different passions, your career ambitions, your family ambitions, different sins, different weaknesses that you've struggled with. So I ask again, how has your running been lately? This passage is for all of us who know what it's like to go through a season of spiritual sluggishness, a season where we lack spiritual endurance. And, and through it out, through these two verses, we're going to discover an antidote to that spiritual sluggishness. And that is faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're going to consider this under three points this evening. First, the examples of faith. Second, the effect of faith. And third, the reason for faith. So first, the examples of faith. And, and right away in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews directs us to something that he refers to as a great cloud of witnesses. And if you're wondering what he means by this, just remember Hebrews 11. Again, draw your mind back to that. Take a look back through Hebrews 11 later tonight and see all of the examples of faith that are listed there. You're going to see those great cloud of witnesses that he's referring to. It's, it's Abraham, it's Abel, it's Noah, it's, it's Moses. And so we know very clearly 
who that great cloud of witnesses is, but one question remains, what is their, what is their role for us? You see, the Greek word here for witnesses, it, it has two possible meanings, and our understanding of that word will affect how we see this passage. A lot of commentators believe that this means that these witnesses, Abraham, Moses, Noah, that they're witnessing our race, that we're on the track, that we're sprinting forward, and that they are surrounding us almost like they're in a stadium, cheering us on, clapping us, bidding us to run and to go to do the Christian life. And that sounds pretty nice, but it's not what this passage is really getting at. See, the better interpretation of this cloud of witnesses is that they're bearing witness. It's not that they're watching us, but that we are watching them. They have set an example for us to follow. They're not just cheering us on from the stands as we run. They've actually run the race ahead of us so that we can follow after them and learn from their example. That's what we mean by this cloud of witnesses, these examples of faith. And the example that they've set is living their life by faith. You might ask, faith in what exactly? We, we use this term faith almost generically. But, but faith has a very definite direction. And as we look back through chapter 11, we see that their faith was rooted in the promises of God. In Hebrews 11, verse 16, the promise that they were being prepared for a better country. So those promises that God would be faithful to them, but more particularly faith that God would bring his people to salvation. And the last thing we really need to understand here about this cloud of witnesses, we know who they are, we know what they place their faith in, but what was the manner in which faith operated in their lives? What, what was the real importance of that? And the thing we need to see here is that faith wasn't just a nice accessory that these Old Testament saints had in addition to everything else that they were. Faith wasn't just showing up to church on Sundays, lighting a sacrifice here and there, making sure they did things right, going through the motions, but then carrying out their business Monday through Saturday. See, that's, that's the idea of faith that we've come to recognize in this nominal Christian environment. You ask someone what they believe, who they believe in, and they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ, I have faith. But the manner in which that faith operates in their life, it almost seems that it doesn't change a thing. But for these Old Testament saints, faith wasn't just that accessory that they claimed. No, faith was their essential lifestyle. Just like a serious runner's life revolves around racing, training, preparing, so the lifestyle of these saints revolved around faith. Faith was the guiding principle of their lives. It was the reason why they lived and breathed. Faith, truly it was their fuel. Just look at the example of Noah in chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah built the ark. And it could only have been faith that would have driven Noah to do something so insane. I don't know how often we think about that, how crazy it would have been for Noah to stop everything in the middle of this 
Mesopotamian desert-type land to start cutting down trees and making boards and hammering them together and building this giant boat for who knows why. That would be crazy, except by faith. Because the Lord commanded him to do so because he promised to be faithful. And so for Noah to do that, faith would have had to been the fuel of his life, the very thing that gave it any meaning at all, despite any human evidence to the contrary. Or you can look at the example of Rahab the prostitute. She betrayed her entire city. Do you think about that? When the spies of Israel came in and she took them in and she saved them, she didn't just turn them over, that would have been the easy thing to do, but she saved those spies She betrayed her entire city. And why? Because she had faith that the God of the heavens and the earth was the all-powerful, sovereign God that she needed to bow her life to. And her family, her herself, they were saved as a result of that. Faith in the promises of God was the guiding principle of her life. Changed everything for Rahab. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is faith the fuel of your life? Or is is faith just an accessory that that you take on and, and put off when it's convenient? Is it the principle that guides everything that you do? How does faith play into the decisions that you make regarding your career? How does faith play into the decisions that you make on what you're going to do on a Friday night? How does faith affect your family habits? It's in looking at these heroes of faith that we see the example of living a life fueled by the promises of God. And so we continue moving on to the next part of the verse here. We see the effect of that faith in action. When faith is your fuel, how does that change your life practically? And that leads us to our second point, the effect of faith. And we see that effect laid out in the rest of verse 12 here. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the effect of faith. That we would lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so closely, and run the race with endurance. So we need to understand what's meant by this idea of, of weights and sins. Let's play back to the analogy of a runner in a race. Imagine you've been spending all that time training for a marathon. You're determined. You're going to run it. And you show up on that Saturday morning, the day of the marathon, totally prepared. You've got new running shoes, new running shorts. You've got your sweat headband, your Apple watch to track your calorie burn. You even You even even brought a a backpack filled with all of your favorite things that you could bring along with you because it's a long race and it it gets boring. And you've got a suitcase with the things that you might need along the way, just in case. And you prepared, you, you ate a good breakfast that morning, three slices of bacon, three links of sausage, eggs, pancakes, waffles. Oh, you're stuffed. You've got everything that you could possibly need to run that race well. Well, as soon as that gun goes off, what's going to happen? 
You're excited, you're ready to run, and immediately you're in last place. Maybe someone helpful from the crowd would yell out, hey, drop all that extra baggage. And you might increase your time a little bit, but you think to yourself, no, I I need these things. It's a long way to go, and I'm going to need these things to take with me. Well, it's just a brief analogy to show that these these weights and things, these weights and sins, they're, they're things that are just slowing us down as we run this race of the Christian life, right? They keep us from running the Christian life with endurance. They, they cause us to fall behind, as it were. And we have to appreciate that these could be good things. This, this, this term, weight, it's a very generic term. It's a neutral term. It's not necessarily sin. That's why it's separate from that word. These could be good things. Things that are perfectly good in and of themselves. They, they could be your family. They could be your career. They They could be your home. They could be whatever, but they're good things that have gotten in the way of something key, something more important. They're good things that have been misappropriated. They've started to absorb all of your time, all of your energy, all of your thoughts, all of your desires. Pastor Dale actually preached on this passage a number of years ago, and he put it very succinctly, he put it this way, If you're wondering what these weights might be in your life, just ask yourself the question, what are you about? You can ask that question a different way. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What's your motivation? What drives you? Why are you pursuing the things that you're pursuing? Are you Are you pursuing your personal ambitions? Are those the things that get you out of bed and motivate you? Are you building your kingdom? Or are you motivated by running the race well? Those weights slow us down. And then, of course, there are our sins, those those pet sins, those secret sins, those things that cling so closely that weigh us down, those things that they harm our assurance of faith. They seek to ensnare us. They seek to bring us to the ground. They want to wipe us out of the race completely. And the author of Hebrews is telling us to put these things off. So that we see that these weights and sins keep us from running the race with endurance. But, But we need to understand something even more important about these weights and sins. We need to understand how we're enabled to put these things off. And this is what we so often get wrong. We think that we need to put these things off by by trying harder, but really it's by living a life that's fueled by faith. That's the effect of faith that we see here in this passage, that we are enabled to lay off every weight and sin. This This is a groundbreaking truth. This changes everything for us. Do you realize that? Do you see that? Because what this truth does, it exposes the real problem with us. We tend to think that our core problem is in our weights and in our sins. And we think, if only I could just put these things off, if only I could try harder and set them aside. We just need to try harder. We just need to to be more disciplined. We need to outstubborn our sin. Struggling with a tendency to be self-serving, knock it off. Are you struggling with pride? Cut it out. 
Are you struggling with sexual temptation, sexual sin? Just stop. Try harder. Be better. That's the idea. We're trying to fight these things out of our pure strength of will. And while it is true that we do need to put these things aside, we do need to put sin to death in our lives. If our only focus is on dealing with these distractions and sins, then we're just managing symptoms. We're managing symptoms while not really dealing with the root of the problem. And and this creates a religion of do's and don'ts. It just creates this empty moralism, this hopeless, empty moralism. But managing symptoms is not the way to cure a disease. There's a root cause that needs to be taken care of first. You can take ibuprofen if you've ever struggled with headaches. You can take ibuprofen all that you want to cure the pain of that headache. And it may alleviate some of the pain, but, but if the root cause of your headache is brain cancer, then ibuprofen's not really going to do anything, is it? It's not really going to solve any problems. And so it is with us. We can keep managing the symptoms that show itself in the form of these weights and sins. We can become rigid moralists, but that's not going to cure our disease. See, your problem isn't first and foremost a sin or distraction problem. Our real core issue, our, our brain cancer, if you will, it's unbelief unbelief, a lack of faith. Let's just think about this for a minute in this passage. If living a life fueled by faith gives us the ability to lay these things aside, then logically, what is the reason why we cling to them so closely? Why is it that we don't lay these sins and weights aside? It's because of unbelief. We don't truly believe that the promises of God are reliable. We don't truly believe that they are for us, and so we want to get as much as we can out of this life, just in case, just in case God leaves us high and dry. We see that same truth spoken of more clearly back in Hebrews 3, verse 19. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn there. I think Pastor Adrian will be getting there in his next sermon on Hebrews. Hebrews 3, verse 19. talking about the Israelites, why they were left in the wilderness. And verse 19 gives you the reason. So we see that they were unable to enter the land because of unbelief. The reason why Israel was punished to wander in the desert for 40 years wasn't first and foremost because of some sin that they had committed. It was because of unbelief. Unbelief is our core problem. And if it isn't treated, then no matter how well you manage your symptoms, they're just going to continue to get worse and worse. So Hebrews 12 gives us the cure. It's faith. Faith is the cure for our disease. Faith that God will not leave his people high and dry. Faith that God's goodness is... And his, his promises are so much sweeter and certain than anything that this world can offer. And so if you're in a season of struggling with your priorities, if you're feeling 
slow, sluggish. If you're feeling a lack of spiritual endurance that you need to run the race because you've loaded yourself down, then ask yourself, what rules your life? Is it faith? Or is it unbelief? Do you really truly believe that the promises of God can be and are for you? Does the way you live your life show that the Lord is preparing you for a better country, a heavenly country, or, or are your weights and sins exposing a deeper issue, a disbelief that God's promises are faithful and reliable? So thus far we've seen the example of those who live lives fueled and by faith in the promises of God. And we've observed the impact of unbelief. And we've seen how it is faith that gives us the strength to lay aside these weights and sins that cling to us. But we must ask one final question. What is the treatment plan for unbelief? Certainly it's faith. Yes, faith, that's true. But, but how is that going to eliminate it? How is that actually going to work? Ultimately, what we're asking here is what good reason do we have for faith? Why? Why? This leads us to our final point, the reason for faith. It's human nature. Before we invest ourselves in anything, we typically want a good reason to do it, don't we? If you're going to give to some cause... You have to really believe in the cause, right? If, if someone comes knocking at your door and they're asking for money, whether it's for a school or for some program, you need to really believe in what they're selling if you're going to give to it, right? You need a good enough reason. Or kids, if, if you're going to drive across the country, stuck in the same van as all of your siblings for hours upon hours, Dealing with all the squabbles and the fighting and your stinky siblings, you're going to need a pretty good reason to do that, aren't you? You're not just going to hop in the van for no reason. You're going to need to know that, oh, there's mountains out there 20 hours away, that once I see those, oh, it'll be worth it. Or, or maybe you're visiting family, some of your favorite cousins that live far away. Yes, you, you need a reason to put up with some of the challenges of getting to your destination, well, the same is true of the Christian life. In 1 Peter 3, verse 15, Peter writes, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, we don't call others to run the life of the Christian, uh, to run the race of the Christian life for fun. We don't call others to live by faith because it's an easier life. And so we must have a good reason for our faith. We have to be assured that the destination will be worth putting up with some of the challenges to get there. And so, lest anyone should begin to wonder whether or not we do have a good reason to live by faith, whether or not it, it's really worth it to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, the author of Hebrews writes this beginning in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the reason. 
Now, maybe you're wondering, how is Jesus Christ the reason for our faith? Why is He good enough reason for me to lay aside all of my own desires to run the race of the Christian life? Let me ask you a hypothetical question. If there was a stock that I could guarantee you tomorrow, put insider trading out of your mind, it doesn't apply here. If there was a stock that I could guarantee you tomorrow afternoon is going to hit it big, it's going to go up 300%. Anything that you put into that stock is going to go up 300%. This isn't a lie. This is the truth. I can guarantee you I have undeniable proof that this is the reality of the situation. What are you going to do when you get home? First thing Monday morning, you're going to call your financial advisor. You're going to open up whatever financial investment app you have on your phone, and you're going to invest every spare cent that you have because you know for a fact that that stock is going to pay off for you. You know for a fact. And so, what if I can make this guarantee to you this evening? What if I could make this guarantee that this world is not your final home? A guarantee that, that the sufferings and, and the trials of enduring this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits you. A guarantee that there is a life after this one, a life that is eternal, a life that matters, a life that counts forever. And what if I could guarantee you that you had a Savior that made it possible for you to see that life? What if I could absolutely, 100% beyond the shadow of a doubt, guarantee to you that all of your sins and warped desires were laid upon this Savior so that you could know what it was like to experience the promises of God? A guarantee with 100% certainty that this world is, is passing away, that it's fleeting. But if you place your faith in this Savior, if you live for Him, then you will live forever by Him. What if I could guarantee that however painful, traumatic, challenging, difficult, terrible the journey was, that the destination would be worth the pain of getting there. If I could make you all of those guarantees this afternoon, this evening, how would your life change today because of that? What would you do tonight? What would you do first thing tomorrow morning? Just sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But congregation, this, this isn't a hypothetical possibility that I'm posing to you. This isn't a situation where we think to ourselves, oh man, could you imagine? That would be incredible. Oh, if only I could be freed from these trials. But no, no these things are an absolute certainty. They're 100% guaranteed. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and begin to live out of that today, they're 100% guaranteed for you. And it's a guarantee found in Jesus because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see, as the founder of our faith, he's, he's guaranteed God's promises for those who place their faith in him. 
by establishing the path to salvation in the first place. There is no salvation apart from the work of Jesus Christ, yet but because He has endured the shame of men, because He was crucified on a Roman cross, because He was raised again and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus Christ has founded our faith. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death and hell, and He's made it possible for God's people to do the same. He's made the promises of God, not this hypothetical hope, but this certain, sure actuality. See, as the founder of our faith, He has guaranteed God's promises by making salvation possible. But He's also guaranteed God's promises by perfecting the faith. Not only has Christ made salvation possible, He's made salvation possible for you. He hasn't just opened up the path to eternal life, to inheriting the God, the, the, God's promises, and said, okay, run on, good luck. There are thorns and thistles along the way. You might not make it, but boy, Oh, if you try hard enough, you're going to get there. No, Jesus Christ has perfected our faith. We don't just stumble along in our Christian life without any help. He guarantees that if you place your faith in Him, that it is for you, that He will carry you all the way there. He perfects our faith. He guarantees that we will certainly reach salvation. And those Old Testament saints they were fueled by the promise of this hope of this Messiah that would come in the future that would make a salvation reality for them. We're in the New Testament. We've seen Jesus Christ. He isn't this, he's in this future hope anymore. He's a certain reality. You see, we live in the light of this risen Son we live in the light of the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. And at the end of this race, as you look on, as you tread, as you run this Christian life, Jesus Christ himself stands before you. He's waiting for you to greet you at the finish line, to welcome you into paradise, to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, if we only believed that, how quickly would we shed any excess weight, any sin that was slowing us down to run with endurance into his loving and waiting arms? Do you struggle with unbelief, dear brother, dear sister? Do you struggle to believe that the destination will be worth the pain of getting there? Then look to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ who stands before you, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Jonathan Edwards said, to go to heaven... Fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but, but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, 
but God is the ocean. And Jesus Christ makes it possible for you today to swim in that ocean. Do you believe that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the promises of God for you? Then ask yourself again, how does my life change today because of that? By faith, let us also, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Amen. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know our struggle. We know our weights and our sins that we carry day by day, Lord, these things that keep us from running the race well with endurance. And we know now in meditating on this word in Hebrews 12 that, that our problem, that our problem is our unbelief, that we don't truly believe that we can rest in and rely on the promises that you have made to your people. Well, Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, it's only by your Spirit pressing through your Word, convicting our consciences that we can be opened up to this reality. Lord, that these, that these promises become not hypothetical, distant hopes, but they become absolute, certain realities for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully by your Spirit tonight. Lord, that your Word would go forth, that your Spirit would move in the hearts of us tonight. Lord, if there is anyone here who's been spiritually lazy, who's been sluggish in their approach to running the race, Lord, it's something we all wrestle with. I pray that you would use this word to convict them, to encourage them to press on in truth. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, who has never placed their faith in you, work faith in them. Work your truth in them. Affect them Show them that your promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ as the founder and perfecter of our faith and bring them to you. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. In response to the word that we've heard this evening, <clears throat> we'll sing of Christ. All I have is Christ. We'll rise to sing. That song of response.
as you go into your week looking to Jesus, receive now his blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.